Tyler's message this morning is what makes you cry. It's a personal message for each one of us. And what makes you cry out in pain or rage or compassion? You know what made Jesus cry? Jesus wept over the Jews' lack of recognition of God in the flesh among him. For centuries, they had cried out for God to come, come among them, for the sin of the Messiah. And when he came, uh, they didn't even didn't recognize him. He came to forgive them for their sins and fix that relationship between them and God. The triumphal entry, when he entered in Jerusalem, ended in tears. He became infuriated with the sellers of sacrificial animals and the money changers in the temple who made a mockery of God-ordained ritual. He cried with compassion over the death of his friend Lazarus, and he wept on the cross. With all that in mind, it's amazing to me that Jesus reserved his fiercest emotions for those people who took advantage of the little ones, be they literally small children or the helpless in society or the outcasts or the babes in Christ who have just come to a newfound faith. In Mark 9, he utters some very, very strong language. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who trusts in me to lose faith, it would be better for that person to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around their neck. And these next few scriptures have caused followers of Christ to scratch their head for years. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter heaven, enter heaven with only one hand than to go into the unquenchable fires of hell with two hands. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better to enter heaven with only one foot than to be thrown into hell with two feet. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It is better to enter the kingdom of God half blind than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm never dies and the fire never goes out. For everyone will be purified with fire. Salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? You must have the qualities of salt among yourselves and live in peace with each other. Jesus, if you read Scripture, you, you finally understand that Jesus talked a lot more about hell than he did heaven for the fact that he knew what a terrible place that it was, and he tried to warn people so they would avoid it. A lot of people, a lot of preachers preach the second half of this passage about relating to sin and to the extent in which we should avoid it without connecting it to the first portion about causing others to stumble and how that important, how important it is in life, how we treat people outside of these walls, actually. Jesus made no such distinction, actually. They belong together. This passage belongs together. In theatrical terms, Jesus' words seem melodramatic or operatic, spoken, spoken with the depth of feeling and emotion. They cannot be read and applied without equal force. Time magazine defines opera as being performed at peak volume because the feeling it surveys are big and deep. Matters of lust and death are too important to be spoken. They must be sung, shouted, thundered, wept, and shown in all their delicious force, end of quote. I'm not into opera so much because I'm not that refined. 
But people that are, it, it, it absorbs them, and the, the passion is so strong that it brings out emotion in, in people uh, as they listen and watch. Indeed, Jesus used exaggerated notions and actions to make his disciples feel the gravity of the situation. He wanted in words to explain them to them how important it was what he was saying. The Jesus of mercy and forgiveness was suddenly using the images of force and fury to illustrate how deep him emotions ran on the subject of sin and hurting others. It, it rose to the surface what he was trying to tell us as humans. Avoid sin, be nice to others. And he brings it about in a lot of different ways, but this here is kind of in your face in a sense. Those whose actions hurt little ones are declared better off at the bottom of the sea with a stone around their necks where they would definitely drown. So, so important was Jesus' emotions for this circle of society, in fact, that he went on to advise the ancient mechanism of pars pro toto. Here's what that means. Practical sacrifice for the sake of survival in a situation of pursuit of threat and anxiety to behavior that would lead others astray or to hurt them. When I was a, a kid, my dad drove a standard oil truck, and we delivered to farmers, and we delivered to this one farmer that had a hook on his arm. I always, that was before prosthesis, they put hooks. And I asked my dad, and he had reached in the snapping rolls on a two-row combine to clean those snapping rolls while it was working, and it sucked him in and caught him, and he had to take his pocket knife and cut his hand off. It's, it's doing that, and I've seen other people, I've seen quite a few old farmers like that, that they'd be missing fingers or hands or part of their arm because they didn't take the time to shut the machine off, and they reached in there, and, and I've ran one of those, so it, it, it can happen pretty quick. But to save your life, would you cut your hand off? And that, that is the severity of what Jesus is trying to say here. When he was the first to talk about pars pro toto in the context of sparing others from harm rather than oneself. So he kind of switched the meaning to that. Meaning. Recommended the pain and humiliation of permitting permanent maiming as a positive alternative, not for the sake of self-survival but the, for the protection and preservation of the little ones. In that time, this was a drastic course of action. At, at Jesus' greatest anger, his, his strongest emotions, his bitterest tears were theirs, for those, reserved for those who took advantage of the little ones. And he, it brought him to tears. Jesus showed us that we can cry. When I was growing up, males learned that real men don't cry. Admonitions like, get control of yourself and stop crying. Only girls cry. Don't be a baby. Trying to wean the weeping out of us. That, uh, the males back in my day, I guess back in the 50s, maybe late 50s, saw that as a great weakness. And maybe it's still seen as that today. Then we found out that because real men don't cry, Men died earlier than women, holding emotion in, not letting it out, sucking it up, if you will, cowboying up, which in some twisted, egotistical way with man's ego thought that was, that was really being a man. But I've come to find out that real men cry. They don't hold back on their emotions. That's what God wants us to do. 
You know why? Because it shows that we're real people, that we're not robots. A life flood of tears, it turned out, is the lifeblood of health and joy and strength. Some men are no longer embarrassed, cry big fat tears. Songwriter Babyface both said, I try to cry when I write, but over what? And that's the question that I want each of you to answer this morning. What makes you cry? You know, I, I cry over, over many things. I, I cried when I got married because I was fortunate to find such a woman. Cried when my kids were born, grandkids were born. Cried when my kids got married. I cried a lot in Russia the first trip. We went to an orphanage north of Moscow about 80 miles. We know how two-year-olds are in this life, in this age, in this country. We walked into a room of about 25 two-year-olds that sat in little chairs with their hands folded, staring at the floor. And they did everything on command. It was the most bizarre thing I'd ever seen in my life. It made me weep. I left weeping. They had re that reattachment disorder that they weren't touched. We went in a baby ward, and there was probably 15 babies laying in there that never got touched, only diapered. They never got held. And they let us Americans coming in here. <laughs> we could pick them babies up and smear on them and whatever, but there was only one person taking care of 15 babies, so you, get, you understand that. Many of you have been to Haiti. You, the, the first time is, is such a powerful effect. And uh, I'll never forget the first time Pastor Jeff went. He, he was so overwhelmed that he almost couldn't get a grip of the depravity and the living conditions that these people were living in. And I've cried over many, many deaths and tragedies and crises in the last 40 years. I've cried with many of you. And many of your stories have embedded themselves in my heart that all I have to do is think about them and start weeping. It's, it's something that we absorb in life. But what makes us cry, church? Do we cry because, like Jesus, the events in our own world cause us pain or rage, and we, being like Him, possess that Holy Spirit, and it causes us to cry as well? Three of the four Gospels read, Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five was one. I think sometimes we, we try to make Jesus plastic or not real, but He is just like us in the sense of human. He was emotional, who could break into a smile. I, I think his smile was like no other. It's why he attracted children. He burst into tears. He could explode with anger over religious phonies. Christ is the head of the church. He's the head of this church, and we are his hands, his feet, his voice, and his fingers. So what really makes you cry? What makes you mad? What makes you sad? What makes you glad? These little ones may seem insignificant, but they are a long way from that. And we have to ask our question, the question is, how do we make a difference in this world? It's becoming more and more apathetic. It seems as every hour passes by 
that, it, that it's narcissistic, that it's egocentric, that, that we, we have created our own kingdoms and we have placed ourselves at the center of our universe and all of our efforts, all of our time, all of our treasure is spent on ourselves. And we're all in this boat together, so we, we have to decide as a body of Christ as what, what are we going to do about that? Eugene Peterson, who authored the translation of the message, he writes this, and I quote, Tears are a biological gift of God. They are physical means for expressing emotional and spiritual experience, but it's hard to know what to do with them. If we indulge our tears, we cultivate self-pity. If we suppress our tears, we lose touch with our feelings. But if we pray our tears, we enter into sadness that integrates our sorrows with our Lord's sorrows and discover both the source of and the relief from our sadness. Frederick Buchner tells the story of William Booth's sleepless night that changed his life forever. He suffered from severe insomnia. So one night he get, gets up out of his comfortable house in London and he goes into the streets. And he ends up in a part of London that he'd never been. It was the, the Bowery. It was the poor section. And he walked that night, and he heard things that he'd never heard. He saw things that he'd never seen, and he smelled odors that he had never smelled before. That's what happens when you get outside of your comfort zone. You smell things that you've never smelled before. He comes home stumbling in in the wee hours of the morning, and his wife, Catherine, was frantic, and she said, "'Where in the world have you been?' He replied, Catherine, I've been to hell. I've been to hell. He then told her that what he'd seen and what he experienced. And together, that night, the Holy Spirit put the foundation of the Salvation Army in their hearts. And we know what the Salvation Army has done around the world. Somebody has said, whenever you find tears in your eyes, especially unexpected tears, it is well to pay close attention they're not only telling you something about the secret of who you are, but more than that, God is speaking to you through them of the mystery of where you have come from and is summoning you to where, if your soul is to be saved, you should go next. Have you been to hell? It's a funny question, is it not? We have a cliche in America when somebody says they've been through hard times. Oh, I've been to hell and back. I'd say the majority of us in here has been to hell and back in one form or another. It's just what life throws at us. It's what we experience. But I'm asking you if you've ever been to another kind of hell, a social hell, uh, an economic hell, a demographic hell. And you say you've never been there, and I say, why not? Why haven't you been to hell? We aren't called to live in hell. We're called to live in heaven. But as Dante found out, you can't get to heaven without going through hell first. I, I love to be positive. I, I like to tell good, positive stories. I like to preach happy messages. But I can't remove myself far enough from this world to say that everything is okay in the world. It's not. I have to live in reality. The world's on fire. The world 
is torn by hatred and strife, a world unredeemed, billions of people without Christ, a world that is God's worst nightmare of which God can no longer speak these words. And God saw that it was good. We read the paper. We listen to the news. We have to admit what kind of world in which we live. There are lots of hell going on. Christian, let me ask you, where are you getting singed? Where are you suffering for righteousness' sake? First Peter 4.19, Therefore, let those who also suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. If you live as a follower of Christ, you will suffer. When you live with integrity, you will suffer. When you live with honesty, you will suffer. When you do justice, you will suffer. Paul telling his young understudy, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 3.12, yes, and all that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution because we stand for the truth. And as I've said here in the last few weeks, we are heading another direction. We are heading toward a post-truth culture where absolute truth has no bearing. We will live and judge people and guide ourselves on how we feel. That is where we're headed. That, I, I, I do believe that. Within the next 20 to 30 years, we will arrive there. And what will happen, it will be a c- catastrophe. And I'm not a doomsdayer. I'm just look, reading some of the sociologists and some of the things that, that they are saying in the direction that we are going. 58, 56, Psalm 56.8 says, You have kept count of my tossings that put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your record? The bottle of tears refers to an ancient practice of collecting one's tears and preserving them in a tear bottle made of glass, many of which had a bulbous bottom and a long neck flared at the top to facilitate collecting the tears. The chapel on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem is known as the Dominus Flevit, architecturally shaped like a tear bottle, is dedicated to Jesus weeping, over Jerusalem as he stood over the city that he loved and faced that rejection. Remember, the, remember he, he brought in this imagery. He said, oh, how many times, like a mother hen, that, that I wanted to take my chicks and gather them under my wings so I could love them, I could feed them, I could protect them. I didn't have none of it. That's a, an emotional time when you think about him standing and looking over the city. A minute, we were on that mountain here a while back. Not some of us were. We have to ask ourselves, am I my brother's keeper? You, you have to answer that. I can't answer that for you. Many of you have been to Haiti, and you relate to what we're talking about. Is it right for one of the richest countries in the entire world? to have such economic disparity that while some are breakfasting on caviar, others are going hungry. Is it injustice? (laughs) Would this make Jesus cry? Does it now? I had this picture on my desk for quite a while. It worked on me, so I moved it. I was a little kid in Ethiopia, and that's been taken quite a while ago. Time Magazine took it. When those images come on TV, do you change the channel? Because I think we can almost talk ourselves into that it's not our responsibility. 
and we can rationalize things to make us, ourselves feel better. Well, you know, that country is predominantly Muslim. So really, that's really not on us. And I, I can go on and on and on. They are far removed from us. It'd sure be different if that was our child, our grandchild, would it not? They, they, would, they wouldn't have gotten that situation. And I could show you picture after picture and heart-wrenching video after video to cement the case. Injustice, abuse, corrupt governments, big business, hurts people, some for the cause of money and greed and power and on and on, or pure selfishness. Incident after incident of injustice, and I think we could all agree with this this, this morning that there's a lot of hell going on in this world. But sometimes it's closer to home. Sometimes it's our own homes when we, as parents, idealize the future of our children too much. That from the time that they were born till the time that they grow up and start making their own decision, we have their life mapped out for them. Parents are infamous for doing that. Then they take a much different path, and it causes them and you much pain, and it crushes you as parents because the day comes and you finally realize, you know what? My child didn't turn out the way that I'd planned. They didn't, they didn't follow my instructions. Where does that suffering come from? I believe that suffering and love come from the same place inside our souls. If we did not love, there would be no suffering. If we had no love, we could watch picture after picture like that, and it wouldn't even affect us. We suffer and hurt and weep for our kids late at night because we love them and we care about what happens to them. A lady named Karen Bacon wrote this, Teach us to pray our tears, O Lord. Absolve us of self-righteous pity that our hearts might carry the burdens which bring tears to your eyes. Help us to cry beyond our own needs, receive our tears, and transform them into the cup of agape love Jesus poured out before all humankind in needed of healing drink. Some of the illustrations that I find are harsh, as this one that was appeared in USA Today, as we think about our worlds. Columnist Susan Estridge wrote about a crime committed by teenagers against a young girl. And here's the heart of the article. What do you do with a 12-year-old murder? According to police, the perpetrator and a group of kids kidnapped a 13-year-old, forced her into an abandoned, vermin-infested duplex, gang-raped and tortured her, barricaded the room, and tried to set the house on fire to kill their victim and cover their tracks. The duplex was next door to a bungalow where 82-year-old Viola McCain, known in Watts as everybody's mama, had lived since 1935. McCain's 33-year-old grandson, Dumar Stark, smelled the smoke and confronted the two teenagers setting fire to the house. We can do whatever we want to, they told him, and their guns were drawn. If you don't get out of the way, we're going to smoke you. Starks ran back inside. It was dusk, and his grandmother had just returned from church. 
She said, Dumar, you can't change these people. Then she went out on the porch and was killed by a stray bullet. It's a sad story, but sadder stories happen every day in our news. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 and 4 says, For everything there is a season, a time to weep, and a time to laugh. What makes you cry? Out of pain, or rage, or compassion. As believers in Christ, there are some things in our world that should affect us that we can't let go, that they keep us up at night, that the Holy Spirit continues to beat on our heart's door and trying to knock it down for us to get involved. Who are the little ones in your world? Who are the ones in our society, in our community, in our church, the children, uh, perhaps, or the helpless, the outcasts, and those that have just come to Christ that don't act maybe the way that we think they should act? They don't know any better. What should, what can we do about that, actually, to serve them, to help them? On August 26th, after the second service, there's going to be a meal packing here where they're packing meals for Haiti. So it'd be a way for you to get involved. It's, it doesn't seem like much, but it's a ton. Because one of our trips to Haiti, we got to pass them out. You cannot believe the people's faces when you take them a box of food that are hungry. It's, it's off the chart, so to speak. So as we cry out, what action does this evoke in us to carry out? We, we ask the Holy Spirit, and He guides and directs us. And our main thing is to be obedient to Him. Would you say this prayer with me out loud this morning from your heart? Lord, we ask this morning to make us tender to those little ones in our lives that Jesus talked about. Forgive us when we are so selfish and apathetic that our hearts are callous to the point that nothing makes us cry. Give us, Lord, your attitude towards others. Help us to love like you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're here this morning and you've never accepted Christ, you are sure welcome to come and we will show you how. Or if you need prayed with this morning, or if you've got this huge bur burden that you want to leave at this altar this morning, please come. Just be obedient to the Holy Spirit.